Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, January 20th. Colorado lawmakers are growing increasingly frustrated with an office they created a year and a half ago to prevent gun violence. They're demanding answers and vowing to create a new oversight panel because they say the office has made little progress. KUNC investigative reporter Scott Franz has been covering the office and its lack of progress. He has more on how lawmakers are trying to turn things around. Lawmakers used an accountability hearing at the Capitol last week to vent and put more pressure on the leadership of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention to start delivering. It's bottleneck, and you have, what, $3 million, and none of it have been allocated to the people who are trying to keep our community safe. That's Senator Rhonda Fields of Aurora. She got into politics to pursue gun reform after her son and his fiancée were shot and killed while driving through Aurora in 2005. Gun violence in our state, it's, it needs to be addressed and it needs to happen like yesterday. Senator Sonia Jaquez Lewis of Boulder County is also upset with the office. Because it started in July of 2021 and we do not have a single dollar that has gone out the door. The office knew this grilling was coming, and it's trying to change the narrative. Less than 24 hours before the accountability hearing, it announced it is launching a grant program that many lawmakers have been demanding for almost two years. The money is designed to help cities educate their residents about things like safely storing guns and using red flag laws to take them away from dangerous people. Jonathan McMillan has been leading the office since May. He says groups can apply for a maximum of $10,000 each. We're working already with community partners that are involved with community crime prevention efforts, community violence intervention efforts, crime victim uh, support. So these will be partners that already exist across the state that will be eligible to apply. But Senator Fields and gun safety advocates say the grant program may be too little too late. She also accused the office of focusing too much on data and not involving community groups enough in the decision-making process. And having these conversations with yourself and not engaging the community for 18 months. And when you do that, it creates doubt and questions about what are they doing? KUNC reached out to McMillan for an interview when he was hired as director, and he declined. And after the Club Q shooting, we reached out again and got another note. The office said it wasn't its purview to talk. When told of that response, lawmakers said they were disappointed. But the office's leaders are defending their progress. Eric France is the state's chief medical officer, and he was the first director of the gun office. He says he felt it was more important in the first year to talk to researchers and find data that could expose the root cause of gun violence. And I think my focus was not on getting grant monies out the door. I felt compelled by the law, by the the language of the law, 
to build a communications program, to build the resource bank, to hire the individuals. But lawmakers and gun safety advocates see things differently, and they're asking for more. With Colorado's gun deaths climbing year after year, they're calling for a massive advertising campaign similar to the one the state launched to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Maisha Fields is a gun reform advocate who also helped with the state's COVID response. We immediately had commercials. We immediately had pamphlets and leaflets. We know how to do this work, whether it's COVID, whether it's making sure kids wear a helmet when they're riding their bikes. Mm -hmm. We know how to develop public health campaigns. She urged the office to start with promoting safe gun storage techniques, especially after two firearms were stolen out of a Republican lawmaker's truck this month right outside the state capitol. Meanwhile, lawmakers ended the accountability hearing with a vow to create a new oversight committee. It will be made up of community members that would meet monthly to help keep tabs on the work of the gun office. I'm Scott Franz. The western U.S. has been slammed by wet weather so far this winter. That's good news for the Colorado River, where snow could turn into a boost for major reservoirs that have shrunk to historic lows. But climate scientists say there's a lot of winter left, and the 40 million people who use the river's water should take the good news with a grain of salt. KUNC's Alex Hager reports. The snow is snowing, the wind is blowing, and high in the mountains of Colorado, the ski slopes are getting busy. To be small, so it's heavenly. It's a heavenly day of skiing. Bill Phillips is standing at the top of a lift at a snowmass ski area near Aspen, where the flakes are piling up. It's the closest thing to flight I will ever have. Phillips has been skiing here for 48 seasons, and he's seen good years and bad. This one, he says, has delivered. It's a, a fabulous year, and we've had regular snow. It's not just huge jump dumps, but regular, really nice, patter, fluffy snow to ski in. And this snow is good for more than just skiing. All of that powder is crucial for the Colorado River. Two-thirds of its water starts as snow in the state of Colorado. This year, with totals well above average, spring snowmelt could help refill Lakes Powell and Mead, the nation's largest reservoirs. But Brad Udall, a climate researcher at Colorado State University, cautions against getting too excited. Everybody is so eager to make an early call on this, and invariably you, you'll get caught with your pants down if you, if you think you know what's going to happen. The Colorado River Basin has experienced more than two decades of mega drought. Udall says climate change is just making this whole region drier. And even with snow totals of 130% of average, it would take more than one year of deep pow to make a real dent. It's great to see a big snowpack, but we would need five or six years at 150% snowpack to refill these reservoirs. And that is extremely unlikely. Udall says warmer temperatures have already cut into the amount of snow running off into the Colorado River. Since 1970, temperatures in the region have gone up by 3 degrees Fahrenheit. And on top of that, abnormally dry soil is soaking up water before it can reach the places where humans divert and collect it. Man, we need to continue to plan for the worst here. That's what we've seen the last 23 years. That's what these warm temperatures continue to tell us. We have to plan for the worst. 
But planning has gotten a lot harder lately, even hundreds of miles from the mountains of Colorado. Cynthia Campbell knows that firsthand. She's a water management advisor with the city of Phoenix, which gets more than a third of its supply from the Colorado River. Our worst case scenario from our perspective is that we have to be in the habit of annually looking to the mountains to see what is the precipitation. In an ideal world, Campbell says reservoirs provide a buffer against the fluctuation of dry years and wet years. But with those reserves shrinking, cities around the Southwest can only plan a year at a time. That's just not enough time to make changes that you would have to make. But that is where we are. And so in some ways, we're living. Is it the worst nightmare? (laughs) Might be. But the seven states that use water from the Colorado River have struggled to reduce their demand. Even in the face of crisis, they can't agree on a plan to significantly cut back on use. In the meantime, big water users are trying to stretch the supplies they already have. That's true even with this winter's big rains in California. Adele Hodge Khalil runs the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which stretches from north of Los Angeles all the way down past San Diego. One storm is is not going to change the game. Whether we get a wet year or not, we need to continue to focus on building the infrastructure we need to create local water supply. And as climate change keeps shrinking the snow that supplies water to people and farms across the Southwest, the need to adapt is only getting bigger. I'm Alex Hager in Snowmass Village, Colorado. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the water in the West, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The new movie, Living, is the remake of a 70-year-old masterpiece from Japan about the death of a minor bureaucrat. KUNC film critic Howie Mofchevitz teaches film at CU Denver. He says that taking on the great film, Ikiru, is more than this new version can handle. My first thought about Oliver Hermanus's living was they blew it. That's an overstatement, but not by a lot. With screenwriter Katsuo Ishiguro, Hermanus has made a morose and plodding film. With screenwriter Katsuo Ishiguro, Hermanus has made a morose and plodding film, much like the heavy railroad locomotive slowly coming into a commuter station early in the movie. And unfortunately, Living comes from one of the greatest victories over misery in the history of the movies. Living's a remake of the 1952 Ikiru by the Japanese master Akira Kurosawa. Both stories are about a middle-aged municipal bureaucrat who discovers he has terminal cancer, but finds a way to give meaning to his life in which he's been essentially more dead than alive. In story, the two films are alike. Mr. Williams, Bill Nye, and Living heads a small, dreary office in the Public Works Department of London in 1953. Tall stacks of dusty files cover the tables, desks, and shelves. You'd think the task is to make the stacks ever taller by never acting on the forms and applications, just putting them in piles. Soon, Williams learns of his cancer and he stays away from work. In a lonely cafe, Williams tells a stranger that he's dying. The man takes him out for the evening so Williams can let loose. That doesn't help. But then Williams bumps into a young woman who just quit her job in his office. And as they go to lunch and movies, Williams rediscovers some of the life he'd lost. That's the gist of the two films, but in spirit and vision, they're nothing alike. 
While living feels like slowly being crushed by a steamroller, Kurosawa's Ikiru is a vision of triumph. On the night out, William sees a stripper. She's heavy and no longer young, so when Williams turns away in despair, it's an easy choice. She's an unattractive stripper, but in Ikiru, the stripper's young and lively, so when Watanabe, the Japanese man, turns away, he makes an active choice. And that's how it is with the two films. Kurosawa's is dynamic and full of possibility for this dying man, living is stuck in the sludge, and the stripper is not exploited. It's too bad because Bill Nye's capable of genuine complexity and depth, but he's wasted on a dead-end project, although he has one great scene. In a pub, he gets up to sing an old Scottish ballad, The Rowan Tree. William's deep feeling changes the atmosphere of the pub. Remaking a Kurosawa film seems like a bad idea from the giddy-up. Kurosawa's writing and his sense of imagery are powerful and distinct and unique to him. It's like trying to remake Citizen Kane or repaint Picasso's Guernica. They're not products that can be replaced or improved. It's not like doing another version of a play, because a script is just part of what happens on a stage, and plays vanish when the curtain closes. But a great film is complete. Story, dialogue, acting, and visual imagery are fixed in place. You can project it thousands of times, and it never changes. The best remake I know is His Girl Friday from 1940. Howard Hawks took a good film, the 1931 The Front Page, about two men in a newspaper. But Hawks made one of them a woman, which changed everything and made it a great comedy. Kurosawa's Ikiru is too good just to imitate, and living even takes place at the same time in history, so it adds little to the story. Why didn't the makers of living set the story in the present? Life in anonymous bureaucracy now is certainly as demoralizing as it was in 1953, and the picture might have shown us ourselves. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. You can hear Howie on Friday afternoons on KUNC. This and more film reviews are on our website, KUNC.org. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. The Colorado Edition podcast is posted every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Have a great weekend.